Well, good morning. It's good to see you guys. I uh, um, pray you've had a, uh, a stress-free week. It's been a little crazy in Huntington. Um, um, uh, my family is not with us again for the second straight week. They, uh, we had electricity. I mentioned last week, Olivia came back on Sunday. Uh, we were sitting at the house on Monday eating dinner, and then that's when electricity went out for the second time, and then uh, she's back in Clarksburg watching online this morning with the kids, so what a crazy week. It's been a lot of challenges, um, and I found myself this week getting like flustered with like um, just all the different changes, and so it, it's, it's been challenging, but um, glad, glad that you know, it seems like life is starting to come back to normal. Uh, and and uh, just see kids this morning. You guys, you guys can go to class at this time. So there is some normalcy coming back. We've got baptisms next week. Excited for that. Um, but a lot of a lot of challenges in our congregation. Like a lot of you went without. Some of you are still without electricity. Um, some of you never lost it. Uh, it is incredible. Like I know Dustin's house became like this. Is like a refuge. It was like it was like a hotel. Uh, so I don't know if Courtney knew that. Courtney's in Florida. Hey, Courtney. Um, but your house has been a great uh, place of refuge for many people in our church this week, so thank you for that. Um, um, but then, you know, some people are still without, so it's just been crazy. And for me, like, I just realized somewhere in the week it was all about perspective for me because I found myself getting angry and, like, frustrated. But then, like, I'd had to think about perspective, could be a lot worse. Uh, it wasn't that cold to where like our pipes, our pipes at least didn't freeze. Uh, maybe some of you had trouble with that, but um, you know, it wasn't that cold. The roads were pretty much fine. We could drive on them. Um, most people, I think, had some place to go, to my knowledge, where they stayed warm. And so it was, it was just crazy. But perspective is everything. I remember learning that years ago. I was at um, Myrtle Beach um, and I went to the driving range at Myrtle Beach, and um, that was the first time I ever saw a professional golfer hit a golf ball, and it gave me perspective. Um, I, I saw this guy, and um, you know, he, he told us his name, but I, I can't remember his name. Nobody, none of us, we, we didn't know who he was even then, um, and uh, he would hit um, with his driver, and it was just amazing. Um, two things uh, went through my mind watching him. The first was awe. Like just as a someone who loves golf and plays golf, like just watching someone of that skill, it was just complete awe for me. Watch him hit. Like when I hit, when I hit with my driver, it will sometimes go straight. You'll mainly like do one of these. But when it goes straight, it just kind of goes out and just falls. This guy, when he hit, it would just like keep rising and keep rising and keep rising. And it would drop well beyond the 300-yard marker, and I'm just in awe watching this guy. Now, keep in mind, he, he never won any PGA tournaments. By professional standards, he was not even that great. But for me, I was in awe watching this guy. Um, the second thing that went through my mind was, I'm never going to be that guy. Like, I, I knew my skill set, and it was capped off. I had practiced... Um, a lot at that point, and I was beating my friends in golf, which was kind of my goal, was to beat my friends. It just be better than them. Um, I didn't want them to talk trash to me, so I was able to beat them. Um, but then watching this guy, I knew, like, I am never going to be him. I, I, I'm closer, my skill set is closer to my friends beating me than me ever coming close to that guy in golf. 
And so I never, I, I knew that I was never going to beat him. When I compared myself to my friends, it, it wasn't that, you know, I was better than them, but when I compared myself um, to this guy, I, I knew that I was never going to be an elite golfer. I, I felt absolutely pathetic, honestly, watching him hit and then me standing beside him hitting, you know, driver. Um, so what I, in reality, what I learned was that I'm really a terrible golfer. Uh, as long as I compared myself to my other, you know, weekend hackers, I was not that bad. But compared to him, I was uh, definitely not that, not that good. And so I learned perspective that day. And today, I, there's a passage I want us to walk through, and I think it's meant to give us perspective. Um, so if you have a Bible, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, Isaiah 6 brought tremendous perspective to the prophet Isaiah, um, my aim this morning is that you will see where you fit in in this world. That as you compare yourself to all of us in this room, you might think, well, I'm not that bad. I'm a pretty good guy, pretty good girl. I'm not as bad as them. Or... But as you compare yourself to a holy, righteous God, it gives you reality. It gives you perspective on where you fit in. So let's look at Isaiah 6 together. Starting in verse 1, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand on a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Let's pray this morning. Um, Father, as we come to this passage, I pray that you, would, um, that you would give us ears to hear, that our hearts would not be hardened. Lord, I pray that we would... Um, that we, maybe we would see our sin as you see it for the first time we've ever seen it in our lives. That we would say, woe is me, 
Lord, that we wouldn't think that we're better than everyone else, but that you would show us perspective this morning. And I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in verse 1, we, we're, we see um, the background to which this encounter takes place. Look at verse 1. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Isaiah's encounter happens in the year that King Uzziah dies. Now, who in the world is King Uzziah, and why is this significant for Isaiah to even mention? King Uzziah, he, he died in the 8th century B.C., His reign was important in Jewish history. He's he's a really good king. Um, He's one of the better kings who ruled over Judah, the southern kingdom. Um, He was not as great as David or Solomon, but he was not as bad as some of the northern kings like Ahab. Um, Some interesting things about him, he became king when he was only 16 years old. Think about it. All your friends are getting their driver's license. King Uzziah is on the throne. He's a pretty big deal at such a young age. Um, and then he, he reigned for 52 years. That's a long time for a king to, to reign. That's a long time for them to live. I mean, he, he's, he's reigning for 52 years. Uh, and the Bible says that the beginning of his reign, he started out with godliness. Um, we see that in different verses. Verses will say things about Uzziah like he did what was right in the Lord's eyes. And so he, he was a pretty good king. Um, he sought after God. God had blessed him. Um, he had seen victories in battles. He conquered the Philistines, some other nations. Um, he built these massive towers in Jerusalem. He strengthened the city walls. He dug these massive cisterns out in the desert. He improved um, agriculture. Um, for most of his reign, he was considered a great and beloved king. But his story has like a sad kind of ending. Um, the last years of his life, it was ruined by just sin of pride. Maybe being in that position for so long, um, no accountability. I mean, he was the king. He could kind of do whatever he wanted. And so he kind of lived that way. And um, near the end of his life, he, um, he boldly entered the temple. Now, during that time, you had kings who were, you know, they were pretty important. Uh, they ruled over the nation. But then you had these priests and they governed the temple. Kings were not allowed to go into the temple where the priests were. Um, that was a sp- special spot that God set aside the priests. Only priests could come in to the temple. And so Uzziah just walks up in there like he owns it. And um, the priests are trying to stop him, get him to, you know, don't go in there. This, this, this is not right. And he begins to argue with them. Well, as he's arguing with them, they see leprosy start to just come onto his face. So that's how his life begins to end. Like he, he, now at this point, he has leprosy. And leprosy in this time, you, had to, you were considered unclean. If you're unclean, you had to be separated from everyone else. So he found himself separated, isolated during the later years. Um, when Uzziah died, in spite of those later years of shame... It was still a national time of mourning. The people loved Uzziah. They appreciate, you know, his leadership. And when the king um, died, especially 52 years of, uh, of, of, of reigning, like, it would bring some uncertainty. And so here, this is a, a time of anxiety for the people. Um, the king's dead, but now when Isaiah enters the temple, he sees another king. 
And you would think Isaiah would say, hey, you know, get out. You shouldn't be here. But this was a different type of king. This was what we'll see here. He's, he's the eternal king. The one who sits on this throne. He sits on the throne of Judah. Um, uh, and he's described as the Lord. All caps. You remember this in, in your Bible? If you see all caps, Lord, that means it's the special, unique name for God. It means Yahweh or Jehovah. Um, and so if you see lowercase, if you see like just capital L, lowercase, O-R-D, that just usually it's the word Adonai means like sir. It's like a respectful term. But all caps, it's, it's, a, it's a, 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 a title for God. And so um, here there's change. The king is dead. 52 years of constant rain. Um, you know, it would bring a lot of panic to the people. Not, we don't like change, do we? Um, we saw that this week. Uh, the power goes out, internet goes out, and we're like freaking out, like, what are we going to do? Uh, and so here, they had stability for years, and now there's change. But what Isaiah is forced to understand is that the throne is never empty. Even though that king died, the throne was still um, full. Um, the Lord had been sitting on the throne for eternity past, and he will continue to sit on the throne for eternity future. Understanding that simple truth, that the Lord is always on the throne, will, will drastically change your perspective when you face difficult times. When your power goes out and you're freezing, you're living out of someone else's house, the Lord is still on his throne. He's still reigning. He's still in control. He's still, um, as McKinley prayed, he's still good and faithful and kind. Those things don't change. And so here you see this king. He's sitting on the throne. But then you see here that the train of his robe filled the temple. That he's in the temple. Uzziah was a king. He was punished for coming in the temple. But here we see this king. It's like he's meant to be there. Um, he's, he's a different type of king. He's no ordinary king. This is a king-priest type figure. He's unique. He's not like the rest of Israel's kings. And so it seems like he's, he's allowed to be in the temple. Um, we can see that he is unique just by how other unique figures in this passage treat him. Look at verse 2. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So above the Lord st stood the seraphim. Now what in the world is the seraphim? Well, they're a type of angel. There's two types of angels in the Bible, seraphim, cher cherubim, so seraphs and cherubs. Um, when you see the I am, that means plural in, in Hebrew. So there's many seraphs here. There's seraphim. This is the only passage in the entire Bible where we even see seraphim. So everything we know about these types of angels are found right here um, from this passage. Um, cherubs are everywhere else you'll see when you see angels mentioned. Um, cherubs are the one who guard the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve got kicked out. Cherubs are the one who show up the birth of Christ. Um, and so here are seraphim, and they don't look like what we think angels look like. You don't go to the Christian bookstore and see angels with six wings, do you? We see like these little cute little angels with two wings. This is 
crazy. I mean, they have six wings, two cover their face, two cover their feet, two for them to fly. Um, there's a lot of bad theology when it comes to angels. Sometimes you'll hear people say, like, well, you know, when they die, they got their, they got their wings. We need to understand humans are humans, angels are angels. When we die, we don't become angels. That, that's not in the Bible. Angels are always angels. People will always be people. We don't die and then become angels and get our wings, okay? So there are two different types of created beings, angels and humans. And so here we see seraphim. Um, and this is a unique encounter. You see they each had six wings. And each wing here we see that had a unique and special purpose. And we see how special the Lord is just from how these, like the purpose of these wings. Um, these angels, they're not sinful. They're without sin, but yet they're still creatures. And even though like they're, they're you know, these unique beings without sin, and they're super close to the Lord, like they have this close proximity with the Lord right now, it's still necessary for them to shield their eyes from gazing upon the Lord. When you just think about that, here, these are angels and their wings are covered. Like, we can't even look at God. He's so holy and unique. We can't even look upon his face. This is like when Moses begged the Lord, please let me see you. And God said, you cannot see me and live. Like God did allow Moses to see partially um, his glory. And, and even that, like, caused Moses, like, he had the veil of his face and there was this glow about him. So this is unique. Then you see the second pair of wings is used to cover their feet. This also is a flashback to Moses. You remember when Moses first countered Yahweh um, in the burning bush, which is right there. See the burning bush? That's what it looked like. And so uh, he, there's this burning bush. Moses, for some reason, wants to go talk to the burning bush. That's kind of strange. Like he just starts this dialogue with the burning bush and uh, the burning bush, we see that it's Yahweh. It's the first time God gives his name is in this passage. God says, don't come any closer. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. So God commanded Moses to take off his shoes. That Moses was standing on holy ground. And the ground was made holy simply because of the presence of God. Now remember, Moses was sinful. And so it makes sense that he would have to take off his filthy, nasty sandals. But here we have an angel. And even the angels are unworthy to walk where the Lord is. That is perspective. That we see these angels in this passage. They realize that they are so different from the Lord. That he is so holy. That even the angels cannot stand where Yahweh stands. And then they sing the song um, and this song, it, it gives us such a crucial point for us to understand about who God is. He's, they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Or maybe your version of your Bible may say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. It's a pretty simple song, right? Um, it, it's basically just one word, just repeated three times. Holy, holy, holy. Now, we would be foolish to miss why this is repeated here. Repetition is so important for us in the Bible. Um, repetition, it's a literary device used for us um, 
to show emphasis. So it was classic what you'd see in like Hebrew literature, Greek literature, and, and, and it was way like uh, to grab our attention. If something was repeated twice, it means it's really important. Jesus would say, truly, truly, or verily, verily, I say unto you. So that was, hey, listen, this is important. But when something was repeated three times, it was like, hey, don't miss that that was repeated twice. Let me just show you that this is even more important. Like, don't miss this. It would be like um, maybe today how we might use like all caps. And like when my, my mom, when she posts on Facebook, she'll write like happy birthday in all caps. And it's like she's screaming at us the entire message. And so like we might use all caps or maybe you bold something or use like um, you might italicize something or underline it. You could use an exclamation point, or if you're like me in my text, I use like a lot of exclamation points if I'm like super excited. There's ways that we want our readers to, to understand like this word or phrase or sentence is really important, and this is how they did it. They didn't, they, you know, they um, didn't have some of the same devices that we would have, and so repetition was a, a way that they would like, hey, don't miss this. And only one time in all of Scripture is an attribute of God elevated to the third degree. It's found right here. The Bible says that God is holy, holy, holy. Not that he's just holy, or even holy, holy, but that he's holy, holy, holy. It's screaming at us. Like, don't miss this point about God. Um, R.C. Sproul, he comments on this passage. He says that the, the Bible never says that God is love, 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 or mercy, 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 or wrath, 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 or justice, justice, justice. Holy means something is sacred. It's set apart from everything else. So the point here that Sproul was making is that God is so far uh, from us. Like he, he's, he's so set apart from us. He's so unique distinct in his holiness. So it makes sense that when this kind of unique figure shows up on the scene, that, that unique things begin to happen. Look at verse 4. And the foundations of the threshold shook at his voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So the place begins to shake. Smoke fills the room. I don't know if that's why some churches feel like they need to have like smoke machines. I know some churches do that. Is that they pull from this passage. They're just trying to recreate Isaiah 6 if we just smoke. So maybe the trustees, if that would help. You guys can think about getting some smoke machines. Get the stage shaken. I helped build this thing. I can probably get the shake a little bit. We can make Isaiah 6, like we can reenact this. But So when, when Yahweh shows up, the place begins to shake. The room was filled with smoke. When you encounter the holiness of God, even the natural realm is impacted. If anyone has time this week and you want to just do an extra study, look at Isaiah 6 and compare it to like one of the Mount of Transfiguration stories in the Gospels. There's a lot of overlap here in, in these two. Like when Isaiah sees this glorified, you know, Christ, which I'm going to argue that he's looking at Christ here. And when Peter, James, and John see the glorified Christ on the, on the Mount of Transfiguration, there's a lot of overlap of what happens. 
when we see the glory of God, Isaiah, Isaiah's response in verse 5 is probably the only response that a sane person could actually give. Uh, look at verse 5. So smoke fills the room. The, the, uh, everything's shaking. And Isaiah says, woe is me, for I am lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, the word woe, I mean, we don't really use woe. I don't know if, I mean, you might say, whoa, that's a different kind of woe. Um, this woe is like meant like destruction or doom. It has the connotation of something coming undone. Here is perspective. Isaiah had spoken many woes. That's kind of what a prophet would do. They'd go around and they would kind of um, declare like destruction and doom on how Israel had been living. Israel, um, you know, they'd been sinful. And so these prophets would go around and say, woe to you, woe to you. Um, in fact, you can just... If you have your Bible, just look back to chapter 5. You'll see a series of woes that Isaiah speaks. He says, woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field, and there's no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. So he's saying, woe to those who aren't taking care of each other. Um, he goes on to say, woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. What are those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight? What are those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink? See, when Isaiah looked out at everyone else, how they were living, he could justly point his finger at them. What was you? What was you for how you're living? What was you? But when Isaiah encounters the holiness of God, the only proper response that he could come up with is, what was me? That's what perspective can do for you. As long as Isaiah was comparing himself with others, he was not that bad. You know, I'm not that bad of a guy. Um, I'm not that bad. What do you really mean when you say things like that? Because that's, you know, I think we, we do that as well. We might think, well, we're not that bad. Maybe you, you said that. What I'm not that bad really means is I'm just not that bad as those people over there or how he's living or how, what she's doing. But when you're confronted with the holiness of God, when you compare um, your righteousness to God's righteousness, your finger does this amazing thing. Uh, it starts... To, to stop, to, you know, it begins to cease pointing at others and what they're doing, and it begins to, like, redirect itself back at you. I've heard people say, like, be careful when you point your finger at someone else. You have three fingers pointing back at you. It's a good reminder for us that, that if, as we're looking out at each other, you know, we can say we're not that bad. It's like when I'm playing golf with my friends. I'm not that bad at golf. But when I encountered this professional Ah, man, I am a terrible golfer. Um, when you are just looking out at everyone else, we're not that bad. But when you look upon the holiness of God and his expectation of what holiness means, woe is me. One author writes about this passage. He says, as long as Isaiah could compare himself to other mortals, 
he was able to sustain a lofty opinion of his own character. The instant he measured himself by the ultimate standard, he was destroyed, morally and spiritually annihilated. He was undone. He came apart. His sense of integrity collapsed. I am a man of unclean lips. I'm lost. Then we see in verse 6 that one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. I don't need to go too deeply into this passage because we have another nice illustration. See the, the second one there? That's, what, that's actually from Isaiah 6. I don't know what the spaghetti on the seashell is in the first one. Um, I'm not familiar with that passage in the Bible. Maybe it's from the Apocrypha. I'm not sure. But there's this touching of the tongue. It's this picture of purification, that he's being purified. Isaiah's heart was full of wickedness. And he had no idea it was that way until he encountered God. Touching his lips was the painful act of cleansing. It was burning away. The filth from his mouth was being burnt away, being purified. It was refined by holy fire. Jesus says that your mouth speaks what your heart is full of. And so that's what you know what somebody loves. You just listen to what they say. And what they talk about is what their heart treasures and values. And so here they, there's this picture of him touching the lips. It was actually like purifying the heart. He was wicked. He was coming undone. He was lost. He was unworthy. He was filthy. And maybe that's how you feel today. Maybe you come in this morning, maybe you're watching online and you feel like you're so sinful, so dirty, perverted, so wicked, so broken. Your past is so tainted by sin. How in the world could a holy God ever use you? If that's how you feel this morning, there's so much hope found for us in this passage. Verse 8 And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. God knew that Isaiah was a man of unclean lips. He knew that when he showed up, when he appeared to Isaiah, he knew that he wasn't worthy. God wasn't shocked by Isaiah's response of being unclean, by being lost. But notice that God did not invite him to this calling Until Isaiah first realized and confessed that he was unclean. Do you notice that? Isaiah had to realize that himself. He didn't call them when he thought, you know, when Isaiah's pointing the finger, what was you, what was you? But he calls them once he realizes that, you know, once Isaiah realizes, what was me? God says, perfect. You're exactly who I can use. God did not wait for Isaiah to get his life together before he called him into mission. The same is true for you today. God is not waiting for you to get your act together, for you to become holy before he invites you to be a part of the mission. He invites you to the mission once you realize and confess that you are not holy. Once you don't know it all, that's when God is ready to use you. Notice Isaiah, after hearing the question of who will go, Notice that Isaiah doesn't begin to play 20 questions with God. 
Well, go where? Is it warm there? Do they have stable electricity and uh, internet? What language do they speak? Is there persecution? Is there a pay cut? He doesn't ask any of those questions. Isaiah realized that if the king is sending you, then you don't have to worry about the resources. The resources of the king is unlimited, and he will give you whatever you need to complete that mission. Uh, notice his response, you know, here I am. Like, it's really not a sense of, like, the Lord didn't know where he was. Like, he's looking for him. Uh, here I am. It's not about his location. It's about, are you available? And Isaiah says, here I am. He's essentially saying, look no further. I will go send me. Are you willing to surrender your time, talents, treasure over to a holy and righteous God? When he calls, are, are you going to play 20 questions? Or are you just going to be available for his purposes? Now, before you answer, you need to understand the greater context of this passage. Um, verse 8 is um, it's a super popular verse. You know, many of you have heard that verse before. It's often like if you go to a missions conference or if you have Missions Sunday, this might be the verse that you've, heard, that you've here read. Um, but not many people are familiar with the rest of this chapter. And if we stop at verse 8, this seems like this is like a happily ever after kind of passage. Um, we, we, we love good endings. It seems like God calls. Isaiah answers. He goes, he preaches, revival breaks out. Like We're all like, yeah, it's, it's all great, happy. But that's not how it works out for Isaiah. And I think we need to, to realize that it, and that might not be how it works out for us either. We can't assume that things are going to go easy. Many times people think, well, if I become a Christian, if I give my life to God, things will be easier. Maybe not. So maybe some of the problems you have, those will go away, but there's a lot of other heat that may come into your life becoming a Christian. Let's look at the rest of the chapter. Verse 9, he says, go and say to the people. So here's, here's his mission. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and the ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. It's pretty hard language, right? Like, it's hard enough already. Why does it need to be harder? Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitants and the houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. God tells Isaiah right up front that being the messenger of a holy God will be hard. It's going to be challenging. And I think this is such an important principle for us to learn this morning or be reminded of that just because God calls you to something doesn't mean he's going to make it easy. We need to understand that. He summarizes in verse 9 what Isaiah's message is going to be to the people. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Maybe Isaiah should have waited before he said, here I am, send me. Maybe you should ask some questions. But I love that he just said, I'll go, whatever. I don't care if it's hard. I'm going to go. I'm going to be obedient. 
Maybe Isaiah thought, maybe it would just be hard for a few weeks, maybe a month, it will just be a season, right, Lord? Well, the Lord destroys any hope of this being just a short season of tough, difficult ministry. In verse 11, when Isaiah says, how long do I have to do that? How long do I have to keep preaching that message? When do I get to preach something easier? And he says, until it's all destroyed, until cities lie waste without inhabitant, houses without people, the land is desolate waste. In other words, Isaiah's ministry will not be one of salvation, but condemnation. There's going to be a spiritual dullness, a darkness, a, a deafness will be on the people. Total unbelief, both outward and inward. It seems like the entire nation is like beyond repentance. This, this is not a very you know, hope, hope-filled picture here. And yet God calls Isaiah to speak. Why? What is the point if no one's going to listen? Well, there's a clue left at the end of this chapter that gives us great insight. You know, this quote from God ends, uh, and, and then there's like this one remaining sentence there at the end of the chapter. It simply says, the holy seed is its stump. Now, what in the world is that? Like, what's the connection? Well, think about a stump. It, a stump shows us where a tree once stood, where it was tall and mighty and strong, but now it's not. You just see the stump. And though the tree is gone, at least the stump and the roots remain. Uh, the tree is not totally destroyed. Uh, it's not been uprooted. And here we see that the stump is the holy seed. A few chapters later in Isaiah 11, God gives Isaiah a little more insight to this mysterious stump. There in chapter 11, we see that the stump is referred to as the stump of Jesse. Now, who was Jesse? Jesse was the father of King David. So King David, we learned that his lineage was going to sit on the throne forever. That there's always going to be a king from the line of David. And so here's this picture. In Isaiah 11, this stump is personified. Um, and it's a perfect description of Jesus. So Jesus, we see like in the Gospels, that like in Matthew's Gospel, it starts out with this um, genealogy, and we see that it's traced back to David. And so Jesus comes from this bloodline of David or the stump of Jesse. And so here's the hope is that in Christ, things are going to be different. Now in John's Gospel, I don't know if you've gotten to chapter 12 yet in your community groups, but if you have, maybe you saw this and maybe you, you were confused. Maybe it um, sparked some conversation in your community group. But in John chapter 12, Jesus actually quotes Isaiah 6. He says this in John chapter 12. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Now that he hears Jesus. Jesus had done so many signs, miracles, but yet people did not believe him. You need to understand that sometimes our hearts, like we begin to doubt God when we're just like, Lord, I just need a sign. We see over and over again in the Bible that miracles or signs do not change man's heart. That we can see the sign just as these guys saw many signs, they still do not believe in Jesus. And he says, so that, verse 38, that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. This is from Isaiah 6. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, um, even of the authorities, believed in him. Um, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Now, verse 41 is fascinating. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now, who's to him? Is John tying all this in with Isaiah? John understands that from Isaiah 6, when Isaiah 6 is saying that he saw the Lord, John is saying that Isaiah saw Christ. This is amazing. 800 years before Christ walked on the earth, Isaiah said he said these things because he saw his glory. That he saw the glorified Christ. Isaiah encountered Jesus and it radically changed him. Isaiah's calling, he knew it was going to be hard, but it wasn't without hope because he knew about the stump of Jesse. And so the same is true for us. God is calling us to join in on this mission, but you need to understand this mission is going to be met with opposition, but it is a mission that is full of hope because the king is sending us. Christ is sending us out, and if the king is sending us out, we have tremendous hope. The apostle Paul knew this. Uh, Paul quoted the same um, Isaiah 6 passage. I had no idea Isaiah 6 was mentioned so much in the New Testament, but here again, Paul mentions this in Acts 28, starting in verse 25. So Paul's at the end of his ministry, and he says this. He says, and, and disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. Paul says that the Gentiles will listen. That's a promise to us from the Bible that we have hope, that our gospel is not going to fall completely on hardened hearts, deaf ears, blind eyes. Um, not all are going to listen, but some will. And that is all the hope that we need to tell others about the forgiveness that we have in Christ. I mean, think about it. Every one of us at one point did not want to hear the gospel. You know, I can remember my life growing up. I didn't want to hear the gospel. I didn't care about church or the Bible. Um, and so when people would share their faith with me, it would fall, it would, from their perspective, it was falling on Deaf ears, blind eyes, hardened heart. But God in his timing was working in my life. And there came a time when someone shared with me 
It was the summer of 1998. Um, I heard the gospel, and I'm sure I have heard it many times before that, but for the first time, I encountered the holiness of God, and I was convicted of my sin. My whole life, I looked around, I'm not that bad of a guy. You know, I wasn't as bad as some of my friends, uh, and so that's kind of was my measure. That was my standard. But in July of 98, I encountered the holiness of God, and it wrecked me. I was like Isaiah. I said, I, I am lost. I, I came undone. Woe is me. And so you keep sharing the good news of the gospel with your family members where it seems like it's impossible, like they're so hardened. Keep sharing. Your neighbors, your friends that you keep praying for, keep sharing the good news. There is hope. Christ came. He lived a perfect life for us. The life that we couldn't live because we're so, you know, woe was us. Christ was perfect. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He died on the cross because we should have. He took our place. He was buried. Three days later, he rose from death to defeat death, to defeat sin. He Raised new life, he ascended to heaven and he reigns now on the throne forever and ever and ever. So that's the one who's sending us out. That's the one who's working in the hearts of those around us that seem like might not listen. Encourage you, keep sharing the good news. May God make us like Isaiah. May we have a profound view of, of who God is in Christ. May we have that kind of perspective that we see Christ as Isaiah 6 sees Christ. Not as this, he's my buddy, or he's just my, this, this, the guy up in the sky. He is the holy, righteous God that even the angels cover their face, cover their feet, because they're unworthy to be near him. That God is the one who is calling you into mission. That is the God who is purifying us. And may that profound view of him lead you to your realization and awareness and confession of your own sin. May you stop pointing your finger at everyone else. Oh, woe is them. Look at them. Look how they live their life. I cannot believe what they would do or say. And may our encounter with the holy God get, a, get us to point our finger at ourselves. May we say, woe is me. Lord, I'm so unworthy of your love and mercy and kindness, and yet you have lavished your riches upon us. May we encounter that kind of God, and may we be willing to trust him with our lives, with every area. May we say, here am I, send me. I'll have the, the band to come back up. Let me pray for us. Lord, this morning I pray that our hearts would not be hardened. Pray that our eyes would not be blind and our ears would not be deaf to hear when you are calling. Lord, I pray that you would that you would show us who we truly are. That we are unclean, that we are lost without you. There's no amount of good works, good deeds that we could do to change it. It took you and your works to change our status, 
So Lord, may we just see you for who you are and may we just confess of how wretched we truly are and then allow you to just rebuild us back into this image that you are, that you call us holy, that you call us blameless and spotless because we're covered with the blood of Christ. So he purifies us. So may we embrace Christ this morning. May you send us out on that mission. Wherever you call us, may we just say, here am I, send me. May we be a people who trust. I pray all this in Christ's name.